I'm going to invite uh, Dr. Nate Lim up here to the front. <clears throat> uh, yeah. Uh, if you don't know Nate, uh, Nate's one of, uh, he's, he's a doctor. Um, I can tell you he does good work. He, uh, he gave me a shot in my hip once. It, it, it hurt a lot, but then it felt much better. And uh, his exact words before he gave it to me were, boy, I really wouldn't want to be you right now. Um, but it helped. And, uh, and I think that's an analogy for the sermon today. He's, uh, he's going to help us. <laughs> God's given him, uh, yeah, some things to share with us. And uh, he's one of our elders. Uh, I just have a lot of respect uh, for Nate, if you know him. Uh, he's just such a, such a godly man. And uh, he, just, he just loves God and loves others. And, and just loves to serve God and others. And so, Nate, we're just so thankful that, uh, that you're stepping up uh, today uh, to be serving God and us um, this afternoon. And so let me just uh, pray for you as you get going. Um, yeah, Father, I thank you for, for Nate. I thank you um, for who you've made him to be, uh, for the way that you have uh, been faithful to him and have led him to follow you. Um, I thank you, yeah, just for, for his heart um, and, and for his mind that, that pursues you um, and seeks to love you and, and just seeks to love others. And, uh, and I just pray, um, yeah, that, uh, that, that your heart would be communicated through him today. Um, just that the yeah that the that you would bless the the, the words of his his mouth and the, and the meditations of his heart as he shares with us uh, this afternoon God and uh, may we receive from him what you have for us we pray in Jesus name Amen. Thanks, bro. I, I just noticed that the wheels of this thing are like precariously perched within like a half inch of falling off a dangerous precipice, and I had this like personal fear moment imagining me pushing this forward and then collapsing on top of it and breaking my ribs in front of you all. So <clears throat> I will attempt not to do that. Okay. Uh, first of all, uh, I enjoyed causing Tim pain. <laughs> you know, there's, there's part of being an emergency doctor where you have to be a little bit of a sadist, you know, because you, you stab people every day. So I stab people every day. And if that, like, hurt my feelings, I'd, ha I'd have a hard time with my job. But as it stands, I kind of enjoy it, so... She really come see me. I'm really quite good. <laughs> oh, man. So, uh, yeah, here I am, Father's Day. Oh, joy. Um, you may, you know, my claim to fame is that I'm married to Leah, my much better and certainly very prettier half, who uh, preached on Mother's Day. And, you know, proud husband moment. I thought she did a fantastic job. Oh, yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. Hey. <laughs> So uh, I noticed that you guys are like really into clapping today, but I was at the Surrey Church this morning. They're way better at clapping on rhythm than you, okay? I don't know if it's because there's a higher percentage of like non-white, AKA Filipinos there, but like during the music, they're like really going for it. So I would encourage you to get there too. So uh, quick show of hands, you know, put up your hand if you're a dad, let's go. All right, yeah, there's a few dads out there. Uh, how many of you dads feel completely confident in your parenting skills? There were two people this morning that raised their hands, and I was like, wow, wow. Okay, and then uh, next question, how many of you find, dads, that being a dad makes you feel really good about yourself? Put your hands up. Oh, one, one. Hey, Tapiwa, oh, a few. Excellent. Good job. 
me know. Let's just say that when I heard that I was preaching today, I wasn't particularly excited because I don't really want to preach about something that I'm doing quite imperfectly. So here I am preaching my, to myself, okay, as well as to you. So here we go. Um, I want to acknowledge in all seriousness that Father's Day, much more so than Mother's Day, comes with mixed emotions. So I did a quick search and Statistics Canada says that three out of 10 people in Canada grow up with the single parent or a stepmom or a stepdad, not with both biological parents. So that means that about a third of the people in this room grew up with a single mom, a single dad, a stepmom, a stepdad, or some other type of blended family. And of kids that are living with a single parent, 80% of them live with a the mom. There are many of you here that grew up never really knowing your dads or having a very complicated, challenging, or even outright abusive relationship with your dads. So before I want to go on, uh, I wanted to say that today can bring up a lot of painful memories. But God, the perfect father, is here in this room. And despite my imperfections and the imperfections of the other fathers in this room, God is here and he wants to show himself to be the perfect, loving, and powerful father that he is. My parents never married. Um, they split up before I was a year old, which is a bit strange for Asian people, I guess. So I belong in that 30% of Canadians that grew up in a single parent slash blended family. I was pretty lucky, actually. My uh, relationship with my dad was pretty good, especially in the last few years before he died. But my house growing up, like so many of yours, was a bit complicated. We'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. The challenge with being a parent, and in my experience, being a dad specifically, is that I, we, are deeply imperfect. And no one else is more deeply affected by our brokenness than our closest family. No one is more harmed by my sin than my children and my wife. It's funny, I remember in high school reading the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, and actually feeling pretty good about it. You know, love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, does not boast, not proud, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs. I was like, yeah, I got this. I'm pretty good, you know. And uh, <laughs> I guess I was pretty self-unaware at 17 years old, right? You know, pretty patient, pretty kind. I mean, I envy everybody else, but like that's like the least bad on this list, right? And so I'm not, I don't have anything to be proud of, you know. Uh, I'm not really boastful. I don't, I don't have anything to boast of. So yeah, I think I'm pretty good. Then I got married. I was like, oh, I'm pretty self-seeking. And uh, I keep a long list of all the things that I think Leah's done wrong, <laughs> right? And then I had kids and... Uh, everything has gone south since then. I'm very rude, right? Uh, very self-seeking, you know? I envy other people's kids. And then sometimes I boast about how my kids are better than your kids, right? I've definitely been rude. I'm easily angered. And the list of all of their wrongs is like just keeps growing. So nothing has revealed to me my own selfishness and brokenness more clearly than being a dad. Nothing else in my life has shown me how much I value my own pleasure, my own leisure, my own free time, my own convenience, my own food above everyone else's. Elijah was stealing my chips yesterday. I was like, back off, man. These are my chips. So suffice it to say that when I heard I was going to be preaching today, I was like, really? You want me to get up there and be like, hey, it's Father's Day. I'm such a great father. Be like me. And I was like, that is going to be a very short sermon. 
So, but then I started thinking about what the goal of fatherhood really is. I remember that Greg said in a parenting seminar a long time ago that parents, and today we're talking about fathers, model what God is like to their children. Fathers are supposed to model what God is like to their children as if that isn't completely intimidating. In the seminar, Pastor Greg taught that when we have a distorted view of God, we often find that that twisted view is born out of what our relationships with our own fathers were like. So as I already mentioned in my life, things were a bit complicated and for complicated reasons that I didn't find out about until after my dad died. My dad was depressed and somewhat absent during my childhood. After age 10, my dad moved out, so I saw him once a week for a visit, and like many Asian parents, or maybe parents in general, there didn't seem to be a lot of encouragement or positive reinforcement, but mainly criticism. My dad often left me with the impression that what I was doing wasn't good enough. Not good enough at math, behavior not good enough, physique not good enough. I mean, I was like 200 pounds when I was 12, so he was, he was right about that, it wasn't a good time. So, I have often struggled in my relationship with God, with feeling unworthy or far from him. I've struggled with feeling inadequate, guilty, like I'm not doing enough or doing it right. And it's interesting to reflect for me upon how much of that struggle has been affected by my relationship with my parents and specifically with my earthly father. So I very ambitiously titled this sermon, The Goal of Fatherhood, Parenting Relationships and Well, Maybe Everything. That's a pretty lofty goal. So uh, let's go to the source, the only reliable foundation, which is God's word. But before we dive in, I'm going to give you a bit of context. The passage we're going to read was written by the Apostle Paul, who is Jewish, and he was raised as a strict follower of the law. He was a Pharisee, for those of you who know what that means. And in this passage, he takes Moses and the Old Covenant, meaning the way that God dealt with the Israelites before Jesus, and he compares them to Jesus and the new covenant. The new covenant is the way that God deals with us now, since Jesus came. So before Jesus died, the only way to get close to God was to be really good at obeying the law. And if you fail to do that, you could offer sacrifices to be forgiven. Paul, in this passage, is telling us about a different way. Not based on our own awesomeness or effort, but based on the sacrifice of Jesus on what he has done to rescue us. So hang in there. It's a bit dense, but the last verse is the point. Uh, we'll unpack it a bit. So uh, let's get it up on the screen there. Uh, but if you prefer your phone or even a proper paper Bible, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 to 18. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I love this passage. Freedom. Being transformed into his image. Who doesn't want to be free? 
Who wouldn't want to be transformed with ever-increasing glory into the likeness of our loving and perfect Father? I've been, I've been meditating on these verses for weeks, and I felt that I should share that I think that the goal of fatherhood, parenting, friendship, and, well, maybe everything, is to be transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. How close are you to being transformed into the image of Christ? How close are you to looking and walking and talking like Jesus? No matter how good you are, it still feels so far away. It's like swimming from here to Hawaii. Whether you're Michael Phelps or you're me, and like the front crawl is kind of like controlled drowning. (gasps) You know, you can't get to Hawaii on your own. It doesn't matter. So in Matthew, it says, be perfect like my heavenly father is perfect. I hate that verse. (laughs) Here's the good news. We are being transformed into his likeness, not are transforming ourselves into his likeness. It is God, the agent of change, who is the one doing the transforming. So what's up with Moses and the veil? What's Paul talking about? Um, We're going to go back to the story in Exodus that Paul is alluding to in the passage we just read. Kudos to Pastor Greg and the team for the excellent series on the Decalogue that we just finished a couple weeks ago. For anyone that knows me well, they know that I absolutely love the Old Testament. I'm not one of these folks that's of the opinion that the Old Testament doesn't matter anymore. I think that God is the same yesterday, today, forever, and that we have so much to learn from the Old Testament and the book of Exodus. That being said, there's some crazy stuff in that book. Just before the passage we are going to read, there's a whole bunch of very cool and exciting things that happen and some not very good things. So the Israelites have been slaves in Egypt. Then the escape, there's the ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea. If you haven't watched it yet, the Disney Prince of Egypt movie is very informative. And there's some good music. I should have like, never mind. I was going to like sing one of the songs for you, but that's not a good idea. So, uh... After escaping Egypt, the Israelites then arrive at Mount Sinai where Moses goes up to meet with God. He goes up the mountain. There's clouds and there's thunder. It's very dramatic. He goes into the presence of God and he receives the Ten Commandments that we just spent ten weeks working through. He gets a bunch of other advice, tabernacles, sacrifices, offerings, etc. They say that time flies when you're having fun. So all the more so if you're in the presence of God. So I can't guess, uh, I guess we can't blame Moses for being up there for 40 days. That's a long time. So then during that period of time, the Israelites down below were like, oh my gosh, is he ever coming back? They're getting pretty uncomfortable. So they decided to make an idol in the form of a golden calf, and they were worshiping it. God's up there on the mountain, and he sees this happening. He's like, I'm going to kill them all. And Moses is like, don't do that. It's going to make you look really bad. Right? And so then God changes his mind, doesn't destroy the Israelites. So then Moses goes back up the mountain, gets a new set of tablets, which God carves by hand again. All that to say is that Moses is the only one who goes up the mountain to go directly into God's presence. And he spends a bunch of time with God and receives the commandments. So then we read this passage right here. Let's go. There. Thank you. 
When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. So Moses goes up the mountain. He comes down. He's glowing. That's a bit scary. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites that he, what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. When Moses came down from that mountain, he was glowing. It's weird. His face was radiant. Whenever he came out from the tent of meeting, from being in the presence of the Lord, his face was radiant. How many of you have been radiant? Don't be humble. I've actually seen lots of you be radiant. You know, working in the foyer, greeting people. I've seen Charlotte Froze be radiant many times, preparing work for our kids' church. I've seen so many people be radiant over here, humbly praying for people, the worship team, people that come here early and set up and take down. You guys are amazing. How many of you have felt the presence of God in worship here in this place? How about in your home when you quietly pray and listen to his voice? What about at Anvil in the chapel or at the top of a mountain or at the birth of a child? Sometimes after those absolutely incredible moments, it almost feels like you could glow. But the glory on Moses' face would always fade away. I always thought that Moses put a veil on his face to hide the glow so the Israelites wouldn't be afraid. But in the passage we read in 2 Corinthians, Paul says that the real reason that Moses put a veil over his face was to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. Another version says the end of what was fading away. So point number one is this. The glory of our own efforts will fade away. Moses knew that the radiance on his face from being with God wouldn't last. He covered his face with a veil so the Israelites wouldn't see the glory disappearing. See, Botox hadn't been invented yet, right? So rather than letting people see the wrinkles, covered it up with the veil. That's a bad joke. How's your glory doing? I don't mean your wrinkles. Is it glorious or has it faded away? I'm not sure that I've ever had a lot of glory to begin with, but it often seems that what little satisfaction I get from any achievements doesn't last. It seems to reset virtually every day. Whatever I feel I may have achieved yesterday disappears today, and then I feel I need to do it all over again. Why is that? Why does it seem that God gives us his glory only to let it fade away? Why did he give the Israelites a set of rules and laws that he knew wouldn't provide an enduring solution? You see, law needs to come before grace. In order for us to understand what mercy is, we have to understand that we are doing something wrong. That's why it's so hurtful when someone does something wrong to you and they don't admit that they're doing wrong. They don't even know what they're doing. See, when you're raising little people, you have to have rules. Don't hit your sisters. Don't throw your food. Pee in the toilet. But then when kids get older, you can have different conversations about mercy, forgiveness, and intentions. So I want to apologize for all the guys in my D group here because they must be sick of 
hearing me talk about my parenting challenges. My son Elijah, bless him, is the greatest challenge to my personal character that I have ever encountered. I have not been more rude, unkind, or impatient with any other person than him. And may the Lord have mercy on me for my failings and help him with my failings. So as an example, you know, of what we're talking about, the law, Elijah's little sister, Adeline, has often been the uh, brunt of his abuse. I remember when he was like four and she was one and a half, you know, they are playing in a room. Elijah comes out crying, eh! I'm like, dude, what happened? Adeline bit me. <laughs> really? Why would she do that? I took her toy. Okay. Another time he comes out crying, what happened, son? Adeline scratched my eye. Big red mark, like right next to his eyeball, right? Now, why would she do that? Oh, I pushed her over. Okay. My, my little 18-month-old girl had learned that she needed to apply the law. You're going to take my toy, right? You're going to push me over, I grab gouge, right? So eye for eye, tooth for tooth, right? So don't take her toy and don't push your sister over. And Adeline, don't hurt your brother. <laughs> Fast forward eight years and now they're arguing over some insignificant thing. You know, like, I was sitting there on the couch. No, you weren't. I was sitting there. I was reading that book. No, you weren't. You put it down. I, you lost my spot. I'm like, guys, stop it now. Um, how's this going? Not so good, Dad. Are you being loving right now? No. Mm. Well, what should you do now? Be loving to each other. How are you going to do that? I should let Adeline have that spot. Yes, yes, you should. So by the way, that's like a script directly from PG's parenting seminar, which was very helpful. So we've been, we've been practicing, okay? So when God saved Israel from Egypt, he rescued them from slavery and gave them the Mosaic Covenant, which was based on laws and sacrifice. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. If you did wrong, you were punished and you had to make up for it by either paying back restitution or by making a sacrifice. God had to teach his people what was wrong so they could learn that they needed grace. When my kids were smaller, their focus was on behavior so that they could learn a sense of right and wrong. Now that they're getting older, the conversations we have are very different. Now that they have an understanding of right and wrong, we can direct our attention to relationships, intentions, and a motive of love. Paul says this. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory, transient, temporary, though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? He's saying, if the rules of right and wrong, which bring guilt and condemnation, caused Moses' face to glow, how much more glorious is the glory that's going to come from the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't ever follow all the rules. We can't meet all the expectations. We don't keep every promise. We don't always tell the truth. Our glory will always fade. What's our response to glory fading away? What do you do to maintain your status, keep up appearances, work. I love to work. 
That's my response. I love to grind. My mom told me growing up that if you weren't very good, you should just work harder. And that's been my motto ever since. Oh, if you're not very smart, you should just work harder, la. It's not what she actually sounds like, but, you know, it's funny anyways. So you should watch me play sports. I'm deeply competitive, but also not very talented. So I mostly get by with, like, pure effort. I've ruptured both of my Achilles tendons playing squash, mainly because I try way too hard. So the second time I burst my Achilles, I was playing squash with Ryan. I don't know if Ryan's here. Victor was there. He witnessed the uh, explosion. But if you know Ryan, you know that he's better than you at sports. No matter what sport, he's better than you. So I was working as hard as I could out there when poof, it exploded, I fell down. I love my wife, she's incredibly patient, kind, attractive. So I text her, text her and I'm like, hey honey, I ruptured my other Achilles. And she's like, no. <laughs> and I say, I'm not kidding. And I wish I had taken a screenshot, but this is literally what she says. She says, I feel no sympathy, only anger. <laughs> you see, I had ruined our whole previous summer being in a walker boot for three months. I was rolling around on one of those like sexy knee scooters, right? I was like at work in the hospital seeing patients with this like thing. Oh man. <laughs> so she was quite upset at the idea of me like being useless for another three to six months. So needless to say, I don't play squash anymore because it might end up in divorce. <laughs> All that to say is I can't play sports that require talent or skill like basketball or volleyball. Now I mainly like run in a straight line, have lift weights up and down, because the only barrier is my effort level. But despite my efforts, the glory keeps escaping. I still like really don't have that six pack that I've been dreaming of my whole life. So I think that the veil that Paul is talking about in this passage refers to our own efforts. The veil is our work, adherence to rules, fake it till you make it, white knuckle power, be better, be more disciplined, diet more, exercise more, don't look at that, don't go there. If you know that the glory inside of you is always trying to leak out, you have to try to hold it in somehow, right? Or worse, lie, cover up the brokenness inside. How many of us have a veil on right now? Last week, Pastor Tim preached on not walking in darkness any longer, but choosing to walk in the light. What are you choosing to hide in the darkness? How many of us are trying to hide our inadequacy, sin, selfishness from everyone else? How many of us have a veil over our addictions or a veil over how we treat our partners or treat our children? Here's the good news. Point number two. In Christ, the veil is taken away. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That's 2 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So in the time of Moses, 
Only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies to come into the presence of God. Moses was the only one allowed up the mountain into the presence of God. And there were so many hoops they needed to jump through. Special priestly garments, a breastpiece, special underwear, a holy turban. They had to be consecrated by the sacrificing of bulls. They were like killing a bull here, kill another bull there, splashing of blood, all this stuff. This is all in Leviticus 16. It's all for real, should you like to do some further reading. And this was all on pain of death. If you didn't do it right, you could die. You know, legend has it that they would tie a rope around the priest's ankles in case he did something wrong in the Holy of Holies so that if he suddenly died because he didn't follow the steps properly, they could, like, drag him out. Why? Why did God give these instructions to the Israelites? I'm not a theologian or a pastor, but I think God did this to emphasize how holy he is and how essential is the work of Jesus on the cross. God is so holy. He is so perfect. But in Jesus, when he died, the curtain is torn. The things that separate you from God are taken away in Jesus. In each of us burns a desire to be reconciled with God. I believe that every person here longs to be in a right relationship with the one who created us. And this has been God's plan all along. He created us for relationship and for closeness. His plan is for every single one of us to be a temple of God, a place where he can live. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, it says this, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Rather than being good so that we're allowed to enter the temple, God offers to enter into each one of our hearts first, allowing us then to honor him in response. The story of the gospel, the story of Christianity isn't be better and God will accept you. The story is this. God knows that despite our best efforts, our glory fades. And even in that, he offers us a path to freedom. Freedom is found in him, in knowing God and being with him. If you choose to acknowledge the insufficiency of your own efforts and receive the intervention, the salvation, the incredible power of Jesus, the curtain can be torn, the veil is taken away. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom! Our society wants to pay Christianity as bondage. They want to show that we're, yeah, rules, slavery. But that's not the gospel. Slavery is out there. Instagram, always wanting to be something better, always envying what someone else has. That's slavery. In Christ, we get to be freed from trying to hide what is fading away. We are set free from that so that we can then pursue our true purpose, being known and yet loved by our Heavenly Father. Freedom for me is knowing that God is the agent of change. Philippians 2 verse 13 says that it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. God is the one working, not you. Point three, we are being transformed into his likeness. So my favorite verse in our passage today is this. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 
There's a few important things to note about this verse. The first is that we have been unveiled. The Greek is literally having been unveiled. So this emphasizes the fact that when we, became, when we become Christians, Jesus is the one who takes away the veil. It's not our own effort that completes this, but the saving work of God who comes down to do this for us. The other thing about this is that it means that this has already been done, past tense. So our work now is to not put the veil back on. So in so much of our faith journey, there's this idea of what is and what is to come. Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. I love that, at hand. So then there's this idea that the kingdom of God is right here. You can reach out and you can touch it, but you can't quite grab it yet. It's not done yet. So then you have been saved by grace through faith, have been saved. Yet it also says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's the idea of God's kingdom, close enough to touch, but there's still something else that we're waiting for. So the next thing I want to point out about this verse is the word contemplate. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. This word, which is translated as contemplate in the NIV, comes from the Greek word for mirror and can be translated as reflect, to show in a mirror. The NASB translates it as beholding as in a mirror. You and I get to be mirrors that reflect the Lord's glory with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What do you see when you look in the mirror? Do you see the Lord's glory? I don't know about you, but I am not and never have been one of those people that looks in the mirror and then feels better afterwards. That's not me. If, there, if any of you people are here, I hate you. Good for you. <laughs> Just kidding, kind of. So, like, I have this, like, weird psychiatric condition. You know, us doctors call it body dysmorphic disorder. It's where you look in the mirror and there's, like, and you're, like, totally convinced that there's something wrong with you. Even though everyone around you is, like, dude, you're fine. Everything's fine. You're, like, no, no, man, I'm totally not fine. I look weird. I look weird. So, <laughs> lots of us have this. So, my default position before God in the past, mainly, but sometimes still now, my default position has been shame and guilt. So often when I start my devotions, I think about all the things that I've done wrong and how I need to be forgiven before I can enter into proper connection with the Holy Spirit. But that's not what he says. As we gaze in the mirror, as we behold him, we reflect him. We are being transformed. We aren't the ones doing the transforming. The Greek word for transform is the same word that we get the word metamorphosis from. It doesn't matter where we started out. It doesn't matter how poorly my mirror reflects the glory of God. Honestly, I feel like my mirror's cracked. You know, it's got toothpaste smudges from my kids. Someone's like smeared it with a dirty cloth, just like the mirror in my house. But God promises that in Christ, we have been unveiled. And we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. Increasing, not decreasing, not fading. That's the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant is transient. It's going away. Whatever efforts we perform in the old covenant, they're always going to wear off. They're always going to fade away. However, the promise that God gives us is that in the new covenant in Jesus, he is the one that transforms us into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. He is the agent of change. 
I'm going to finish up in a minute. So uh, why doesn't the worship team come on up, please? This message of the gospel is for everyone in this room. Whether you've been following Jesus for 50 years or 15 years or five minutes or not at all. Here's the question. Are you fading? Are your efforts achieving the glory that you want? Or like me, is your effort and your hard work insufficient? Are you hoping that someone will be able to reach down and transform you into something greater and give you access to an intimate relationship with the only perfect, loving Father? If you've never heard this message before, or if you've never received the salvation of Jesus before and you want to, you should find a friend that you came with or come to the front in just a minute when the prayer team's up here. If you've been following Jesus for so many years and are again in need of salvation, like all of us are, because you want to be transformed into his likeness in a greater and greater way, then I would encourage you to come up and receive prayer as well. Let's pray. Lord God, I confess that my efforts are inadequate and I'm constantly trying to put on a veil to hide your glory fading away, to hide what's leaking out of me. God, we don't want that. We believe that in Christ, the veil has been taken away. And we believe that in you, we are being transformed into your image with ever-increasing glory. So God, we ask that you would highlight those things in our lives that we need to let go of. You ask, we ask that you would highlight those things in us that we can give up to you because you are perfect. Today is Father's Day and you are the only perfect, loving and powerful Father. We ask for your salvation. We ask for your intervention. We need you, Lord Jesus. Amen.